Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. This is Larry Lessig, and this, after a long silence, is another episode of the podcast Another Way. It's been a long silence because I guess I have to confess that it took a long time to recover a sense of where we should be going since the failure of reform in Congress occurred. And that failure happened when the Senate refused at the beginning of the year to modify the filibuster rule to permit the Senate to vote on the Freedom to Vote Act, which was the Joe Manchin version of the For the People Act. That failure and the arguments that defended that failure had a profound impact on me. And in the six months or five months since that, time, I've been working to direct my writing and thinking on the question of how we should be responding. But I wanted to continue this conversation on this podcast to think about reform with a conversation with one of the leaders of an organization that has triggered in many a deep cynicism or skepticism about reform organizations or reform in particular. And that organization is No Labels, which was founded um, just after 2010 with a wide range of leaders who said they were trying to take on and address the problem of partisan polarization in Congress to build counterforces influences that might facilitate a Congress that could work together. And Bill Galston was one of those founders of that organization, No Labels. I wanted to have a conversation with Bill because I've had, for the whole of my career, enormous respect for his work, his practical work, first in the Clinton administration, but also with many candidates to get them to think about important issues of public policy in a constructive, productive way. And I wanted to talk to him about No Labels and its relationship to reform. Because as I've written about and spoken about in earlier conversations in this podcast, No Labels has been characterized as an organization channeling large contributions in a direction to facilitate particular kinds of legislative action that don't include legislative action to making the system more representative or more well-functioning. In particular, last June, June 16th, 2021, there was a recording of a conversation of a meeting hosted by No Labels um, with 
supporters of no labels. And Joe Manchin describing the issues inside of Congress, including the issues related to reform. And in that conversation, the leader, leaders of no labels, in particular, um, one of its co-founders, um, Andrew Bursky, described the leverage which the organization had because the organization could channel such extraordinary amounts of money, up to $50,000 per member, to get members to uh, defend the issues that No Labels advances. Now, of course, that's what every political organization does inside of Washington. That's the nature of the problem in Washington. But what was striking to me was to think about an organization like No Labels launched for the purpose of making the system work better using the system, depending on the system, and to the extent they resisted reform of the filibuster, slowing the improvement of the system so that it can't address the problems that we face in any way better. So this is the conversation with Bill Galston. If you've not heard of Bill Galston, it's surprising because he's been on the field forever. Um, he holds a chair of governance study, the Ezra K. Uh, Zilka Chair in Government Studies at the Brookings Institute. But before Brookings, which he joined in 2006, he was a professor at the University of Maryland and a professor of political science at the University of Texas. And his special, specialty is public policy uh, and political philosophy as it relates to political institutions. Um, and in that capacity, he's written an extraordinary range of books, nine books, more than 100 articles in the field. The most recent book is Anti-Pluralism, the Populist Threat to Liberal Democracy. That was published in 2018. But he was a deputy assistant for domestic policy under Bill Clinton um, during the Clinton administration, an advisor to Al Gore, and really, I think, the intellectual leader behind um, No Labels. And so this conversation with him tries to unpack what the purpose and theory of change for No Labels was. And as you'll hear at the end, it includes an effort to force a reckoning about the question of reform and the role that No Labels will play. I'll confess that after the conversation, I'm more optimistic and more depressed. Uh, I'm more optimistic because I hear and understand the realism in what Bill Galston will explain here, the desire to read this as a cynical truth, this organization pushing the name of reform, but really aiming for cynical partisan or money-focused victories, is, is less plausible in light of the account that Bill Galston offers. But I'm more depressed because the reality is it's hard to see how we push beyond this broken and corrupted institution, when even the most successful internal reformers of the institution take it as obvious that they need to rely upon the structural corruption in order to achieve their objectives. How do we get beyond that? 
Well, the answer to that question is for later conversations. Let's now shift to the conversation with Bill Galston. Uh, and um, afterwards, I'll come back with some reflections. So, Bill Galston, thank you so much for talking. I wanted this conversation to introduce people to the organization No Labels, which you were instrumental in helping to found. Um, and it's had a long life. Uh, and so I want to start by just going back to its birth and having you just tell us a story about what got you and others like Mark McKinnon together to think about how they should form an organization to do something different from what was already happening. Well, there uh there was a group of us back then, uh, very diverse politically. Uh, you know, we weren't all political pundits or fundraisers. I mean, it was, we were all over the map. Uh, but we agreed on two things. First of all, that the widening pol polarization of American party politics, which was evident even at the time, we're talking now about late 2010, uh, was not healthy for our democracy, certainly wasn't good for the legislative process, was not good for public trust. It was bad for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and secondly, otherwise we would have just shrugged. Uh, we thought that at least in principle, there was something that could be done about it. Uh, and I'll be frank, when we started it was an experiment. It still is. But we thought that something could be done about it. We didn't know exactly what that something was. Uh, and so we understood that we were just going to have to get started and then fumble our way forward. And over a period of X years, we had no idea <laughs> what the value of X was, uh, that, we, that we would gradually figure out how to be effective, where the sweet spots might be for the crafting of counterweights. I won't say cures for or antidotes to, but counterweights to uh, this tendency that we did not see as positive for anything we cared about. So you um, obviously been a professor for many years um, before that at, at Texas and uh, at Maryland, uh, before you came to Brookings. Um, and you'd been thinking about political philosophy, but practical political philosophy, spent uh, years in the Clinton administration. When you looked at the problem of polarization, did you have a theory of what was driving the polarization, what accounted for this uh, pathological change that I think we all observe was bad then, is worse now? Well, uh, you know, I am guilty as charged. You know, I spent more than 30 years as an academic and two large public institutions. Uh, I'm a political philosopher by training, and I have not abandoned the trade of my youth, uh, but I have diluted it with a few other things. Uh, it wasn't just that I was in the Clinton White House. I'd been involved before no labels in half a dozen presidential campaigns. Uh, and so I understood something about practical politics 
uh, from those campaigns for my two and a half years in the Clinton White House in a fairly, though not awesomely, senior position. And so I was able to bring together some scholarship on the history of American politics, some political theory, some constitutional theory, with the practicalities that I saw around me. I mean, I have, you know, I have a 50-minute lecture that I will spare you and everybody else because this is this is not the, the occasion, but I'm 76, which means I was born just a few months after the end of World War II. And so I actually lived through a period of what's now called consensus politics and witnessed its gradual transformation into whatever the opposite of consensus politics is. Polarization is a term that's usually used, but others could pick it, pick it a different term. And you know, so there are all sorts of things that set this in motion. I mean, in my judgment, uh, this breakdown began in the middle of the 1960s and has continued in fits and starts ever since. I mean, sometimes there are abrupt, almost step functional changes of the political system in the direction of polarization, as there certainly were starting in the late 1960s with the Vietnam War, uh, the rise of the counterculture, which put cultural issues on the public agenda for the first time in a very long time, uh, the breakdown of the consensus on Keynesian economics, uh, which occurred in the 1970s in response to the, the, the great stagflation of that period, uh, the emerging centrality of, of racial issues, uh, which certainly has its roots in uh, the, the mid-1960s, you know, we tend to focus on 1965 as the year of the Voting Rights Act, which, of course, it was. But something else equally momentous happened in, the mid, in 1965, which was the passage of the Immigration Reform Bill, which reopened the gates of, of immigration to America after it had been slammed almost shut for 40 years, 41 to be precise, since 1924. And not only did the flow of immigrants accelerate, but also the doors were open to immigrants from places that had hardly been represented in the American population at all. And you know, the so I think the immigration reform acted as a kind of a demographic time release capsule and gradually transformed uh, the demography of the United States and equally significantly the democracy, demography of the electorate. And so by the mid-1980s, a lot of people had begun to notice these changes and they began to ask, well, when did this happen? I don't recall talking about this or voting for this. Uh, who made this happen? And, uh, you know, why, why is it being permitted? Uh, it's not good for me economically. It is threatening not only my place in society, but also the nature of American culture, et cetera, et cetera. So all of, all of this was happening. And then starting in the 1990s, and I date the next wave of polarization to the 1994 midterm elections, the, you know, the Gingrich revolt, 
which led Republicans out of the desert for the first time in the biblical 40 years. And then obviously the, the reaction to the failed invasion of Iraq, uh, the reaction to Barack Obama's election. And uh, one other thing, the formation of what I'll call an aggrieved working class consciousness in response to the evisceration of the manufacturing sector of the United States, which contrary to popular belief, did not begin in the Clinton administration, which actually created manufacturing jobs in those eight years, but in the uh, presidency of George W. Bush, during which we lost more than four and a half million manufacturing jobs, which we've never regained. So I could go on, uh, but I think the current polarization is a sea of trouble that has been fed by numerous rivers, some of which I've just ticked off very briefly. So that's my theory of the case. Well, uh, okay, so let's talk about two two of them. Let's highlight two of two things that you've just described, but I want to push you on a third. Obviously, 1965 is critical because it begins a really important ideological realignment of the, or the ideological purity inside of the party. I mean, remember uh, Johnson recognizing that passing the Civil Rights Bill and passing the Voting Rights Bill was um, certain to weaken the Democratic Party in the South and that facilitated the ideological reordering of the parties to be ideological parties, which they basically had not been prior to that point. So this is one key driver that we have ideological parties. The second is Newt Gingrich. Absolutely. You're, you know, I think we don't really recognize and we need to talk more about the way that he changed Congress to become an engine of ideology by pushing people into the business of fundraising and stopping them from working with other people on the other side of the aisle. That's incredibly important. But the but the part that I think people are just stunned by uh, is almost the epistemological polarization. Like the idea that we live in a world where more than half of Republicans today believe that the election of Joe Biden was stolen. Um, that's not because of immigrants. That's not because of Newt Gingrich. That's because of something much more fundamental. And I wonder when you look at that, whether you have any way of understanding what's driving that or what's making that possible in a, in a way that I don't think in 1965 we could have imagined that happening. Well, that's fair enough. And, you know, my the colleague two doors down the hall, Jonathan Rausch, you know, has just written a big book on that. And obviously it's a massive phenomenon. I actually see that as more a consequence of the polarization that I've described than a cause. Uh, the, the more polarized you are, and this is, this is by now conventional wisdom, I, I think it has, as Henry Kissinger once said, the additional merit of truth, but uh, uh, that we tend to be more in bubbles. We tend to spend a lot more time listening to and talking with people of our own tribe than conducting cross-tribal conversations. Uh, The the shift in the nature of the media has clearly facilitated that. Uh, when, When I was growing up, you couldn't make money narrow casting, right? 
You had to be a broadcaster. Uh, and that's why the nightly news shows on all three networks, two and a half to begin with, and finally three when ABC matured, uh, were very similar to one another uh, because people were going through the same calculations in the boardrooms and and in you know and in the newsrooms, uh, and they were trying to appeal to the broadest possible audience, and that drove certain familiar features of news and information presentation as it stood half a century ago. Uh, and so polarization plus changing technology has made it possible to make a lot of money uh, with one side of the truth uh, and often you know, only remotely connected to, to the truth, that has made a lot of bad problems worse. Uh, and it, it has intensified the problem of what I'll call cross-tribal persuasion. Right? And the, you know, the higher the cost-to-benefit ratio is of efforts to engage in cross-tribal uh, persuasion, the more likely you are to embark on a strategy of intensification as well, mobilization rather than persuasion. And that has driven a lot of obnoxious recent phenomena in American politics. Uh, and I am not sitting here brimming with optimistic responses to this polarization. Uh, I don't think it can go on this way indefinitely, but if you press me as to how it's going to end, I don't know. In that respect, it's a little bit like the war in Ukraine, I would say. Yeah, no, no nuclear weapons at the end of this fight, but maybe something just as I don't just know. As destructive. <laughs> um, there are you're, political you're, equivalents, yes, which is right. why they're sometimes called nuclear options, because yeah. in order to save the country, you have to blow it up. No, I think your point about the, as you describe it, the narrow casting versus broadcasting is critical. I mean, there's a extraordinary story of Roger Ailes, who, of course, when he worked for Nixon, Nixon said to him, I need a Pravda, as he was admiring Brezhnev's um, support inside of the Soviet Union. And then he goes off and launches Fox News. But his most important contribution to the launch of Fox News was to steer them away from trying to become a cable version of broadcast news and instead become a niche uh, broadcaster, a narrow caster to a conservative base, which, of course, if you look at the ideological content of the um, cable news networks, after that happens, they all begin to veer into their own little corner um, as they try to define their audience and maintain their audience. It's a critical part of the problem. Um, so I agree. But then what's interesting to me when we think about that as the problem is, again, going back to no labels, no label steps in and and has a theory of change about how they're going to respond to try to knit together a better functioning government and in particular Congress. Um, and I just wonder, you know, just walk us through how you thought the interventions you might push. And you've had been very successful in creating organization or structures like the 
um, uh, you know, caucuses inside of Congress to try to bring this about. But how you thought those might respond to the particular kind of problem you were observing? Okay. Uh, our, th- our theory of the case, stripped to its essentials, is that as the parties of pol- have polarized, a lot of people in the electorate have felt increasingly displaced or even no-placed by the polarization. They look at what the polarized parties are saying, how they're saying it, the options that they're presenting, and they say to themselves, I don't recognize myself in either of these messages, in either of these agendas. You know, I am always holding my nose. uh, And I wish, hope against hope, that one day I'll get to vote for an agenda that I really believe in. And at the risk of causing some controversy, let me wade into the hottest topic on the current policy agenda as an example. I'm, I'm talking, I'm talking about abortion, right? Uh, I, I recently conducted an extensive review of public opinion sources on abortion. Uh, and the majority of the country is nowhere near the center of gravity of the two political parties on this issue. They are quite literally unrepresented. If I were to characterize the center of gravity of the population as opposed to the partisan competition, I would put it a click to the right of Roe v. Wade. That is to say, most people are very comfortable with the trimester formula. Uh, They are a little bit more concerned about the second trimester than Roe was and in favor of more restrictions on abortions in the second trimester that Roe contemplated. But within hailing distance of Roe, which is why a solid majority is in favor of maintaining it, on the other hand, if you look at the bill that the Senate majority leader brought to the floor you know, a few days ago, which got nowhere, it doesn't codify Roe. It goes well beyond Roe and is two clicks to the left of Roe uh, for all sorts, you know, and I don't have time to go, go into detail. So you have a center of gravity in the country that's unrepresented by the positions of the Republican Party, which extend, we can now see, far beyond the abolition of, abolition of Roe. Uh, and a lot of Red state governors have left the, let the cats out of the bags recently and have revealed that they have ambitions that extend perhaps to contraception and a bunch, bunch of other things. So we, we have two parties that have become increasingly radical on this divisive subject. They've abandoned where the majority of the American people are, uh, and that is causing a fair, a fair amount of discontent. Now, just extend that process or that template to a bunch of other things in society. And uh, so part one of our theory of the case was that that unrepresented portion of the population existed. Part number, 
The second part of our theory of the case was that that was especially true in the Congress of the United States, where you had a cadre of legislators that really hated what the House and Senate were becoming and had become, Uh, that they came to Washington as people who were accustomed to getting things done in various walks of life, including in state legislatures, but many of them came from businesses, the armed forces, et cetera. Uh, And they simply didn't understand a process uh, that led over and over again to no outcome, no result, no accomplishment. That wasn't what they came to Washington to do. And, you know, uh, talk about stories. When we were starting out, we heard story after story of how legislators for different parties, when they arrived in Washington for the first time, were herded into the equivalent of partisan, uh, partisan cattle shoots and funneled off into one-party activities starting on day one of their orientation. Uh, And when we put together our first group, first bipartisan group in the House of Representatives, we didn't set them up to do anything except to get to know each other. And many of them said to us not soon after we began, you know, this is the first time I've had a talk with a member of the other party, represented the other party since I got to Washington X years ago. You know, and X might have been one, three, five, but but there were some veteran legislators there who said that it had been years since they'd had a conversation. So, you know, and, you know, and after after a little bit of after actually after more than a little bit of trust trust formation, which was one of the major objects during, you know, you can't have serious conversations with people you don't trust, but trust doesn't just materialize because you have people in the same room. They need to get to go, you get to know each other, uh, do some easy things together. And then you gradually move up the rheostat up and you ask them to get more and more serious, first of all, with low hanging legislative issues, and then eventually with larger and more complicated ones. So it was a process that lasted years. And, you know, it had its skeptics and detractors all along, uh, but it got to be a going concern. Uh, And it is a tree with some fruits. Uh, for example, the Congress, this current Congress in, in the first year, I guess the first year of its operation, I can't remember when now, uh, managed to a, uh, enact a very large decades-long infrastructure bill, investing more than a trillion dollars in parts of the country that are actually critical to commerce, to transportation and communication, which had been neglected for a generation. It was this bipartisan group that No Labels put together that made that bill happen, right? That was the group that sat together, went over the proposed budget for the bill line by line, asked themselves, is this necessary? Is this the best way to accomplish X? Because we agree that X needs to be done. Is this the best way? 
And they came up with a detailed framework for the bill that became the legislative vehicle uh, for the passage of a very significant piece of legislation. And you know, we we have helped to spearhead another potentially potentially significant piece of legislation, the uh, the Invested Investment and Competitiveness Act, which, if the House and Senate can resolve their differences, would get the United States, for example, back into the business of encouraging domestic semiconductor chip manufacturing, manufacturing, which has turned out to be a huge bottleneck in the global production system, et cetera. So it was a process that took the better part of a decade to turn into something really meaningful, uh, but it has produced and is producing some real results, contrary to the beliefs of skeptics who said that the system was so whole, uh, totally and, and unfixably polarized that nothing could get done and that we would have to wait for things to get much worse before there was any hope that they would get better. Yeah, and I think those are genuinely important accomplishments in the Problem Solver Caucus just by meeting and talking about whether there's a way to solve problems in a cross-partisan way is a solution. Whether it achieves anything at all, it at least focuses people on the character of the problem. But I, but I want to bring it back to the theory of the case, because, yes. I mean, you know, one of the most dramatic changes in the character of Congress happened just at the time that you started uh, No Labels. And that was the Republican Party's um, forgetting that there was a problem called climate change. Um, you know, before 2010, we had real Republicans. I mean, John McCain had a climate change bill, like he thought it was better than Barack Obama's. Um, but in 2010, the Koch brothers made it known that if any Republican acknowledged and pushed climate change as an issue, they would be primaried. And almost overnight, within four years, the party's willingness to talk about that issue, even acknowledge the problem that would need to be solved, changed dramatically. Um, and so the people who constitute Congress, the people who you might try to get into a problem-solving solver ca uh, caucus, were, were wedded to a view of the world, which I, I, I'm pretty confident you don't share, um, and unavoidably so, because they knew that their political existence depended upon them denying what I think you and I believe is a fundamental truth. So when you think about the theory of how you're going to bring about a change of Congress— I guess the question is, can you solve the one without addressing the other? Can you solve the problem of polarization without thinking about the, you know, the economy of influence that's going to produce a Congress that, for certain issues, is just not even capable of addressing the issues? Uh, good question, and not an unexpected one. And... I have a confession to make. Uh, I am a political realist in a very precise sense. Uh, uh, I, I believe in looking at a situation, accepting certain fixed points in that situation, however unpleasant and counterproductive they are, and then trying to reach solutions that don't wave you know, the magic wand and 
don't assume, as the economists on the desert island famously did, a can opener. Look, uh, if I thought that there were a legislative fix for what you're calling the economy of influence that the Supreme Court would allow to stand, I'd be I'd be going gung ho for it. But I think that the the Chinese torture that's been inflicted on the McCain-Feingold bill is a pretty good indicator of the likely fate of many of those efforts. I'm not an expert in the area, and I'll defer to you uh, because you've put a lot more study into this than I have. But what I'm counting on in the case of climate change is reality therapy administered to vulnerable populations and eventually to their elected representatives, including governors of states that are being visibly affected by it. So let me give you an example. I have noted with interest an interesting shift in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's rhetoric on the issue of climate change. Why? Because coastal Florida is increasingly endangered, and that is and that is a, a challenge to society. It's also a challenge to Florida's economy. It's increasingly a challenge to the real estate sector of places like Miami Beach. I could I could go on. Uh, and it's also it's also the case that Florida is an increasingly red state, which is not as dependent on fossil fuel production as many other red states are. Uh, and so his you know his rhetoric on the issue has become more accommodating. So uh, and similarly, I've noticed just recently spontaneous expressions of concern by farmers in a lot of red states who are noticing weather events, droughts, floods, tornadoes occurring at a frequency. These are veteran farmers in the 60s, 70s, even 80s some case, in some cases, a frequency that they had never observed before. And so I am an optimist that when a problem becomes undeniable, and significantly affects the lives and interests of people, regardless of their party partisan affiliation, uh, that change will occur. Would it be better if we didn't have to go through this extended process of reality therapy? Yes, it would. Uh, and I think, I think there are ways that people who believe in reality can nudge this process along. Uh, we're not going to be doing it by expelling the Koch brothers from politics. That's simply not going to happen. So I think we have to live with it and work with it and work around it and work against it. Well, I mean, let's think about how to work around it. Um, um, I mean, we can bracket for a second the point you made about whether there's something the Supreme Court would accept. Um, I, I won't. I won't agree with the characterization that there isn't, but put that aside. Let's think about a very practical issue, which um, you wrote about quite convincingly right at the birth of No Labels, but um, at least the way No Labels is characterized right now, uh, the organization seems to be taking the opposite position, and that's the question of the filibuster. Uh, as you wrote in 2011, the filibuster has evolved uh, 
into a mechanism um, that defeats the capacity of Congress, uh, the Senate, and therefore Congress, to address important issues. Um, and it wasn't intended to function like this. It's, you know, it's not the Mr. Smith goes to Washington filibuster. It's not Strom Thurmond's filibuster. It's a filibuster that basically stops uh, the ability of Congress to address issues. And, and the piece that's still on the no-label site um, argues in favor of reform and marching back to at least the talking filibuster as a way to make it so that problems can be addressed. Um, do you, do you, is no labels position your position or is no labels, uh, you know, um, against the idea of filibuster reform? Uh, no, to the best of my knowledge, it is not against filibuster reform. It is against filibuster abolition. Uh, and so I'll, you know, I'll speak for myself here because No Labels as a broad organization mm-hmm. you know, tends, it, it, it's not like the contract with America where you have to sign on to 10 propositions right. or you're not really part, part of the contract. It's, you know, people can pick and choose. My view is that there is no justification for filibustering a so-called motion to proceed to debate. None whatsoever. I can't think of any theory of democracy where present where preventing serious discussion of an issue uh, is the right thing to do. Uh, I suppose we could have an interesting debate about the Wilmot proviso. If you want to go back there, uh, you know, is silence sometimes golden? I suppose so. But as a general proposition, that's not the right way to run a, a democracy. And who knows if senators are actually debating an issue in full view of the American people, not only might the people learn something, but some of them might change their minds. Uh, it might accelerate the process of informed information, uh, rather informed opinion formation. So I am emphatically in favor of that reform. I will tell you why I'm hesitant to go all the way down the road. And interestingly, a lot of Democrats are now being beginning to think seriously about this. The filibuster is a shield as well as a sword. And many Democrats are now asking themselves, should we advocate the total abolition of the filibuster when Mitch McConnell, who may very well be the Senate majority leader, has not ruled out, conspicuously refused to rule out, bringing a national abortion ban to the floor of the Senate in 2023, if he has the power to do so? Do Democrats really want to open the door to that? I'm not saying that the answer is obviously no, but it is a serious question, which is more than a law school hypothetical. I mean, no disrespect to law school hypotheticals, uh, but this is a real issue, real and present. So, uh, So that's where I am as of now. Having said that, uh, this is one of those one of those issues where I have shifted my position over time and cannot guarantee to you or your listeners that I'll be in this same spot for the rest of my life. Right. But but I think that what's striking about um, 
the the issue is the way it relates to the theory of change of no labels. Because um, let's just take the proposed reform that you were describing, which I would totally sign on to. Like, let's make it so at least you can get something to the floor to debate it. Um, I would go further, but let's take it at least there. The current situation, the current rule basically means that the 41st most conservative or the 41st most liberal has a veto over the ability of Congress to address anything because what that person, what that extreme on the right or extreme on the left person can do is trigger a filibuster that stops the ability to consider anything, meaning that the extreme, so Mike Lee is the 41st most conservative member of the Senate, Mike Lee gets to decide what the Senate um, can proceed on or not. Um, But the theory of no labels was that we were going to get a bunch of people who were reasonable and uh, willing to talk to the other side to sit down and work together to try to solve problems. Those people are counted out in any regime where the 41st most liberal or the 41st most conservative gets to decide what Congress can address. And so when, when you think about what No Label says it's trying to do, it seems inconsistent then not to support openly um, the idea of getting us to a place where the reasonable majority actually can govern, whether it's eliminating it completely or at least getting to a place where we can have a debate about it. That seems much more fundamental to what No Labels would be about, which leads, I think, many people to be cynical or skeptical about really what is No Labels about. Because to the extent, I I know you're familiar with the inappropriately leaked, perhaps, but leaked conversation from last June, um, where Andrew Bursky was with Joe Manchin talking about the efforts of No Labels around the filibuster. And um, um, Manchin was talking about his need to block the effort to change the filibuster. That seemed inconsistent with the idea of no labels trying to facilitate a Congress that could address problems in a reasonable, moderate way. Well, uh, I'm going to surprise you, Larry. Uh, I was not aware of that. Wow. Uh, Okay. And, uh, you know, and... I would be very surprised to learn that Joe Manchin is, you know, unbudgeably against changing the changing the rule on, you know, the motion to proceed. And let me let me tell you, I say that because I have had private conversations with senior Republican senators who are in favor of that reform. So I think they're you know, there may have been some, and I have not heard this recording. I, you know, I blush to admit, uh, but uh, you know, I think there may have been some confusion as between the total abolition of the filibuster and the abolition of the the abolition of the filibuster on the motion to proceed to discussion and debate. But I'm not sure about that since I simply haven't heard it. Well, that's very revealing. Um, and it reassures me about about, about you, Bill, because, um, because it's a striking conversation. It's not just about the filibuster. It's also about the role of money. Because what uh, um, Andrew Bursky was describing in the course of this conversation was the extraordinary leverage no labels had because of the insane amount of time that congressmen have to spend raising money. 
I mean, let me just read you one passage of what he said. Uh, he said, think about joining the house. You're there for 730 days. Unless you pick the leap year, you might get 731. And for vast majority of those days, you're spending four hours on the telephone dialing for dollars. And then he goes on, and so what a large contribution from donors, namely the no-labels donors, does, aside from sending a very strong message that there are, that there are those, if you take tough votes, that bipartisan nature might not be popular within your party, it also, in real life, frees them to do more work because it's spending less time raising those funds. Now, I would agree with that. I mean, indeed, most of my work is just trying to get people to focus on the dependency that fundraising creates for those members. But what's striking about that is that he's selling this dependency as a way to demonstrate the power of no labels to, f to force its issues into Congress and to get them resolved in that particular way. And again, this you, you can take the position as you did originally, which is like, I'm a realist, we're not going to change money in politics. But that's very different from saying, I'm an opportunist, and I'm going to leverage the power of money in politics and the fact that we've got large donors who are giving, um, you know, he, he says the no-labels team 1,000, which would be people who could give up to $50,000 uh, to support a particular candidate. It's another thing to, to take advantage of the system in a way that makes people skeptical about whether the real objective is improving the system or leveraging the bad in the system for particular ends that your funders might support. Well, um, I can understand that. Uh, you know, I would say, I would say first of all, that there is there is a difference between using leverage, including money, to force people to do things that they don't believe in, as opposed to using leverage to empower people to do things that they believe in. Uh, and we're not, we're not talking about quid pro quo here. Of course. Right? What we're, you know, what we're talking about is a, syst a system you know, which I deplore. Let's be clear. We do not have a normative difference here, Larry. A system that I deplore, which now forces people to start dialing for, in the House of Representatives, to start dialing for dollars even before they assume office mm -hmm. and to do it essentially every day or to fall behind and then have to spend miserable 18-hour days doing it in order to have enough of a war chest to scare off potential primary opponents just for starts and then to wage a general election campaign. This is a terrible system. But it is the system. And I would be thrilled if reformers could find a way of changing this system. And I've watched with dismay uh, at the fate of their efforts. Uh, but what are people supposed to do in the midterm, in the midterm time? Right? They're supposed to throw up their hands or if you have leverage within the current system that empowers people who genuinely want to work with members of the other side towards ends that they that they jointly agree to, empower them to do that, right? And to tell them, and and to tell them that if they get primaried as a result of that, 
that people will have their backs in, frankly, the way that matters most in a primary campaign. Now, do I like this? This is, this is an X best system of government where X is not a small number. Mm-hmm. But, you know, General, you know, General Marshall famously said when people were wringing their hands, he said, don't fight the problem, fix the problem. And if the problem is not being able to get things done in a terrible system, then figuring out how to get things done in that terrible system is a whole lot better than just sitting back and waiting for, you know, a lightning bolt of illumination to hit, you know, the Supreme Court, the leadership of the House and Senate, uh, and the American people. Uh, I don't think we have time to allow that to happen. And I am 100% against using money, just to bring this around full circle, to get people to take and work for positions that they don't believe in and that are designed to serve special interests. Uh, I can't say that I'm in favor of using money in the current, current system to empower people to do what their conscience tells them to do, but what which political and financial calculations may counsel against. Right. And I agree with that. Um, although there's a third case here, which we should make sure is on the table. When money has been deployed to produce a Congress filled with people who are at the extremes, um, they don't have to be doing stuff they don't want to do. They just are doing stuff that wouldn't necessarily be the stuff of Congress if that money hadn't filled the Congress with people who believe at the extremes. Um, so the money is a part of the problem. And and I, I, I accept the idea you could have the idea of a reform organization that thought this is not the part of the problem we're going to solve. But it feels like there's a normative obligation at least to be clear about the, 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 three, the three steps that would get us to a, a better functioning representative democracy. And um, the filibuster at least to a place where we could have a debate about issues, like the talking filibuster, um, where you've got to work for it. You can't just stop legislation by sending a text to your leader. Um, Would be an extraordinarily important point. And yes, it might make more risky certain issues that we care about. But, you know, the idea that we set American policy on the basis of whether abortion is going to be passed at the federal level or not is a little crazy, right? There are really important issues out there uh, as well as this important issue. And what we have right now is a system that doesn't enable us to address really any of them, uh, except in these rare cases that you have helped facilitate, like the infrastructure bill. Um, But what beyond this are we going to get so long as 41 senators have the ability to block any um, any a, any consideration of any bill more powerful than the veto, because, of course, a veto can be overridden, but you can't override the refusal of the Senate to pass or consider a bill. Well, that is true, although uh, a fortiori, if you if you can't get 60 votes, you can't get 67. <laughs> so, yeah, right, which is why I think there's a, you know, um, Manchin, um, when they had the discussion, when they had the debate on the floor of the Senate um, about the filibuster, which is an extraordinary day because um, I think it's a measure of 
really the weakening of the Senate. If you compare it to the debate about McCain-Feingold, which was a genuine intellectual debate between people who had very different sides, this was a show. People got up and they read their speeches, and there was very little real exchange about it. But the most striking thing to me was um, Senator Manchin stands on the floor of the Senate, and, and standing next to him is a sign. And the sign says, never in the history of the United States Senate has a majority had the power um, to uh, uh, basically stop debate and bring a bill to a vote. That's not exactly what it says, but that was exactly what its meaning was. Um, now, that was an astonishing placard to put next to him because, of course, as I'm sure you know, in the first 50 years of the United States Senate, a simple majority vote could always bring a bill uh, uh, to a vote. There, the, for the first 50 years of the Senate, there was a perfect capacity for the majority to rule. Uh, and for most of the history of the Senate, there was a norm that allowed a bill to ultimately be voted on in a majority way, um, because the norm of the Senate was we ought to be able to get things done. But the problem you started describing, the negative partisanship that has infected our Congress, has produced a new norm in Congress, which is we don't want anything to be done by Congress. Except, of course, as you know, the Senate filibuster rule exempts certain issues that are um, like budget issues, which makes it possible to cut taxes with a simple majority. Um, um, or appoint Supreme Court justices with a simple majority. But any other issue requires a supermajority. But in a world where there's no norm to work together, that's basically saying we've decided Congress won't be doing anything. It seems to me this is a really fundamental problem for an organization that's focused on trying to find a way to get agreement um, uh, on sensible issues. And, and it would feel like being transparent about the nature of that problem in these issues would be central to your mission? Well, uh, you, know, I'm, you know, I'm describing and representing no labels as it is. Uh, it is a distinctive organization with a distinctive set of objectives. And we've been clear from the start that there are all sorts of worthy reforms, like, you know, for example, you know, the re reform of the system that produces legislative districts yeah. uh, or reform of money in politics and a bunch of other issues, which many other organizations are working on. And we took the position from the start that to be effective, you had to have a narrow range of objectives on which you concentrated all of your forces. Uh, there's a famous story you know, uh, Napoleon has just taken over France. And of course, all the other powers of Europe are massing to attack France. Uh, Napoleon asks his generals for, you know, for their best defensive plans. And one general produced an array of the French army, you know, with, you know, battalions equidistant and, you know, symmetrical around the entire French border. And Napoleon took a look at that, and he smiled and said, General, are you trying to stop smuggling? Uh, and, uh, you know, and that remark, I think, is, illustrates why in politics, as in war, a concentration of forces on key objectives, you know, rather than trying, as Putin did at the beginning of the Ukraine war, to attack simultaneously from every direction, 
thin out your forces, accomplish nothing, embarrass yourselves, and have to go back and start all over again. Uh, you know, I, I defend the right of any reform organization to focus on the problems that it thinks it can make a difference a difference in solving, particularly if it believes that no other organizations are trying are trying to solve solve that problem. Uh, but you know, as I said, uh, there's one other thing to say in response, and I say this with no cheer whatsoever. Uh, in circumstances of deep partisan polarization. The consequences of allowing the other party to get its unfettered way are much more serious than they would be in a less polarized situation. You know, there was a time in American history, you know, when I was a boy and a young man, where, you know, allowing the Democrats to write a bill or allowing the Republicans to write the bill on the same subject wouldn't have produced a disaster either way. But now the downside of allowing the other party to have its way is much greater. And so I think it is, it is unreasonable to expect either party to allow that to happen. Uh, and if one party does allow it to happen, the odds are that it will come to regret that permission slip to the other party as soon as they lose control of the House or the Senate or both. So... There is a relationship between polarization and various counter-majoritarian restrictions on the voting process in the House and the Senate. I think you'll have to change one in order to change the other. It's a great point. It's a really great point. Um, Bill, I promised you 255, you could stop, um, and we're 254. So I'm going to deliver on that promise. And I'm grateful for your honest and, and really, really insightful contribution in this conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. Well, thanks for inviting me, Larry. It's been a pleasure. That was Bill Galston reflecting on where we are and how, I guess we could say, how we're stuck. And that is where we are. That's why it does seem we are stuck. And the anxiety about this polarized Congress in a majoritarian system, I think, will fear, create fear for people on both sides. I think Gulston's point about the abortion debate in particular brings that out. Because if, in fact, the objectives of people like me to see the filibuster changed fundamentally to return us to a majoritarian Congress came about, we could easily see the flip and back and forth inside of Congress based on these extremely polarized parties that have little to do, as Galston was suggesting, with the actual mix of people in America. It is an incredibly difficult problem. So we'll continue the conversation. This is Larry Lessig. This is an episode of Another Way, a podcast produced by Equal Citizens. You can find us on the web at equalcitizens.us slash another way. And 
You can find a place there to give us your feedback and your ideas and your suggestions and the directions you think we should go. The feedback is extremely interesting, not always pleasant, but at least interesting for me, and I'm grateful for that feedback and especially grateful for the support of the work that we're trying to do. More on that later. Thank you for tuning in. Stay tuned for the next episode, which I promise will not be five months from now. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.